We're going to open up our Bibles to Genesis 1 this morning, and we're going to start something a bit different and uh, new. So, uh, since we began the church two years ago, our pattern has just been to open up passages of the Bible and go through them sequentially over a number of weeks, understanding them in their context and so on. We are not doing that in the run-up to Christmas. Uh, Controversial, I know, don't worry. Um, So, we're going to be doing something a little bit more topical, taking a theme and running with it, trying to uncover some ideas that will lead us up to uh, Christmas. But it's not going to be all about Christmas. I get bored of Christmas um, mid-November usually, so um, we're not going to do that. But what I am going to try and do is hopefully lift the lid, open some fresh light on on stuff before we get there, and uh, take something of a, a different angle. So we're starting a new series called Incarnate, or Incarnate, or however you want to say it. And uh, we're going to open up the Bible to Genesis 1 to begin with. I want to read to you a couple of little chunks there um, from Genesis 1 and 2 about the creation of mankind, and then we'll take it from there. Genesis 1, verse 26. I hope I don't need to give you a page reference. It's right at the beginning. (laughs) So, (laughs) page 2, yeah. Um, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Literally, let us make Adam in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he'd made and behold... It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now we're going to jump down to verse 5 of the next chapter, which kind of tells us the, in a little, from a different angle really, the creation of, of mankind. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land. <clears throat> And was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I think that um, our world, our culture, our society, however you want to look at it, has a kind of slightly confused relationship with our bodies. The body that we're in and the bodies of other people. And uh, so that on the one hand, I think we have body worship. Idolatry of the body. Body has become a focus of object of desire. We lust after bodies or we desire to be like those we lust after. We adore them and uh, we, we sculpt them. And you find you know, guys who become, I think they call it gym monkeys, right? So they spend a lot of time hanging around in the gym and just like pulling bars and things like gorillas and all that kind of stuff. And what's it all about? I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of idolatry around the body, a lot of adoration around the body. And then at the other end of the spectrum... Um, in a kind of contradiction or paradox, there's also this uh, strange ways, and we'll try and draw this out a little bit, that we have something of a, a despising attitude towards the body, that it is often a source of deep dissatisfaction in us, um, with ourselves. Uh, we brutalize them, we morph them, transform them, paint them, pierce them, do all kinds of weird things to them, and abuse them. And uh, we have this confusion, this, this dual confused relationship with with the body and so what we want to do is um, start a series called incarnate because 
One thing you should know about, this came out in the prayer, right, in the, in the worship, the uniqueness of our faith is that God became man. He, he took on himself a body. He became a person. He became flesh like you and me. And I want us to recapture the wonder of that. It is an extraordinary thing. It changes the way you should look at the world. That's my main reason for where we're going in the next few weeks. Um, another part of this, though, is wanting to understand our own embodiment, the fact that you and I are present in this room, wrapped in flesh, and what that means from a Christian point of view, because it has actually a pretty profound thought when you start to uncover what it's about and learning to appreciate the goodness of God in the gifts he's given us that your humanity preaches to you about God's goodness and his design and all these kinds of things. And then hopefully all of that, looking at these two angles, is going to kind of open up to us new insight into the plan of God, the purpose of God, and our future. Uh, we sing singing a lot about heaven, but the reality is a lot of times we imagine something quite different or expect something quite different to what the Bible talks about when we think about the future. And even when we think about the presence, what are we doing here right now alive in this city? These are the kinds of things that, that uh, we're wanting to touch on as we open up this passage. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you, it's going to be a bit weird, a bit different to normal, but because um, <clears throat> I normally have three points, right? Anyone's noticed? Today I've got ten, so it's going to be three, more than three times as long. So bear with me. And um, we've got ten points, and here they're kind of what you could call sort of ten theses on the body, on your body, on my body, on, the, on what it means to have a body. And we're going to start with a couple of more central ideas, and then work outwards into some of the implications. It may feel a little bit random, maybe a little bit disjointed. I'm not pretending that I've thought about everything or looked at it from every angle. It's not meant to be totally comprehensive. These were just the most important things that came to my mind as I was wanting to look, say, look, what does the Bible teach on this, on this, on this subject? And uh, why is it important? So here we go. Here's number one. You with me? First of all, you don't have a body. You are a body. Profound. <laughs> now, here's why I'm saying this. I think we think about our bodies all wrong. We think about our bodies as something we own rather than something that we are. And uh, it's, it's, it would take a while to fully open up what I mean by this, but I'm going to try and just do a, a quick job at what I'm, I'm talking about here. I think this has a lot to do with the fact that our culture has been massively shaped by the Greeks, believe it or not. Um, certainly a theme in my big fat Greek wedding, right? So it all comes back to the Greeks at the end of the day. The Greeks had a profound influence on Western society, on the way Westerners think about themselves, the way they think about life and the world and the universe and everything. And a lot of it came from a gentleman called Plato. And particularly, one of the things that Western culture has been influenced by is a kind of the separation, the spirit from the body, spirit from matter, where the spirit's been elevated as something perfect, flawless, beautiful, something to aspire after. And the body was always seen as something debased and disgusting and gross. And uh, certainly, if you'd seen this abscess on my hand this week, you would have agreed with that. But uh, apologies for keep bringing that up. I really shouldn't. I just <laughs> don't plan to, but hey. Um, so the Greeks had this, this kind of what you call dualism, this duality that started to infect the Western mind and, and shape the way Westerners think for millennia. And, uh, and so it, it comes out in a number of ways that I'll try and open up to you in a couple of minutes. But you, I just want to start by saying, first of all, that Hebrews didn't think that way. And it's evident from when you start reading Genesis 1. Uh, that the Bible doesn't set up this duality in this way, this separation between body and spirit as things that belong into two distinct categories. It fuses them together in perfect unity. And so what we have here when God created man, what's the first thing it says in verse 26 of chapter 1? It says, let us make Adam in our image. Let us make man, Adam, same word, in our image. Now you may not know this, but there's something interesting here. The word Adam is related to the word for red. And also, you know, so is the word ruddy, which Chloe was referencing in the book of, Proverbs, uh, book of Song of Solomon there. So to do with the word for red, and why would God call, call uh, Adam red? And the answer is that he was made from the red dust 
of the ground. Now, that might not strike you as a particularly interesting thought to begin with, but it is actually very interesting. Because what it's saying is, you think about this, when God was thinking how to describe name, uh, this creature he was forming, he named him in reference to the material that he was made from. So it would be like calling him Dusty or something like that. Seriously. <laughs> Stupid, I know. But it's like calling it. It would be a dumb name. But hey, it sounds like a name. Oh, I won't go there. Um, <clears throat> he's named after the red dust. And so when you go down further in the chapter, it says, The Lord God formed the man, Adam, of the dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He's this fusion of spirit and matter in perfect unity. And the two should never, ought never to be separated. Now, here's some of the clues why I think that we think about this all wrong. Let me just give you a few examples. One is um, just how we think about spirituality. That so often we, we think as Christians to emphasize the internal over the external. The state of our hearts in separation from the state of our bodies. Um, and we tend to elevate the internal. Something we'll talk about in a few minutes. We abuse or neglect our bodies, mistreat them mishandle them, dishonor them, do all kinds of things with them, and, and see it as distinct from godly spirituality. Here's one of the biggest ways that we see this, this working into our culture and in our, in our kind of assumptions, is the fact that we honor um, the mind above the body, and particularly when it comes down to work. Again, something I want to open up a little bit later. But you see, obviously this, is, this is, comes from guys like Plato. They loved philosophy. The Greeks loved to, to spend hours debating in the public places and talking. The Greeks had this almost worshipful attitude towards Sophia, towards wisdom. And they thought the body was something disgusting, a shell that one day we'll get rid of and discard. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have our true destiny as a spirit. And so we, we tend to elevate things that honor the mind and the internal above the body, which, you know, and, and the manual and the physical and the sweat and the grime of day-to-day life. You know, here's one of the most sensitive areas where we see this coming through in our culture, by the way. And uh, you may never have looked at it this way, but you think about the massive move uh, towards sort of normalizing transgenderism in our, in our society. Now, what's going on there? When you hear a person who talks about their sort of gender identity or this kind of thing, the language that they, they, they typically use is saying that um, I felt like, say, let's say, a man trapped in a woman's body. So they're separating out your, your true self, your true identity, who I am in my core essence from my body as two distinct things. And then, of course, so when you say, oh, I felt like a man in a woman's body, who is this woman that you're talking about as another person? Because from the biblical point of view, that woman is you. That's your body. That is you. And you are not something in separation from your body. So our cultures wanted to rip these two things apart and talk about the plasticity, the changeableness of the body. We can morph it into whatever we want it to be to match with our true self, our true identity, the inner being. I think the same thing is kind of going on in a slightly different way when we talk about homosexuality. That it's the ripping apart of your body from your spirit or your true identity, your inner self. When, of course, the way God made you, God made Adam from the dust, that is you. That is your gender. That is your identity. That is your sexuality. Now, I don't want to deal with this in a rough way and sort of run roughshod over people's genuine agonies and struggles in these areas. But what I am trying to tell you is that a lot of this actually comes from this inbuilt, innate Greek way of thinking that has very little to do with the way the Bible talks about your humanity. That's the first thing. You don't have a body. You are a body. Here's a second. Your body is a beautiful gift. How do you feel about your body? see some worried expressions. (laughs) Seriously, how do you feel about your body? What do you feel like when you step out of the shower and see yourself naked in the mirror? Do you look away? Do you feel disgusted? Do you feel adoring? <laughs> it's possible. I think some of the guys are like, mm, yeah. <laughs> 
But often a lot of us find there's a lot to dislike about our bodies, right? But, you know, one of the things that's obvious, you know, this is Theology 101 from Genesis 2. God made you. But he didn't just make you in the way that, you know, you, you think, oh, he made Adam all those hundreds of generations ago, and I'm just the product of genetic descent. No, the Bible says that he had much more of an intimate intimate, hands-on involvement in your formation. Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, in this body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. This is happening with a couple of people in this room right now. We don't know their names yet. We haven't seen them yet. We've not got to say hello yet. But with Jenny and Shanae, this is happening inside their bodies. But God sees. He's working. He's weaving. He's forming. He's shaping. He says, you, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Sorry, Jenny, was that a secret? You, good, just checking. <laughs> Whew! Right. <laughs> congratulate her later if you didn't know already. There's no way Sinead's keeping that one secret. It's coming out in, about, in just a matter of weeks. So, God made you in a very direct, intimate way. He actually made you. His hands were involved, as it were. And not only that, but... He invested his beauty, his, who he is, he invested into you because he made you in his image. That's what Genesis 1 tells us, isn't it? In the image of God, he created the male and female. And, you know, I don't know about you, when, people, when I give gifts to people, I, um, I like it if they appreciate it, even if they just pretend to appreciate it. I have a niece who, whenever we give her a gift, she doesn't do that. She goes, oh, I already have this, or oh, I didn't want this one. There was one year we gave her, I don't know, like a, a bit of jewelry or something, and she went, not a DS, as in not a t- Nintendo DS? I'm like, how rich do you think we are? <laughs> so, but when you give someone a gift, you want them to appreciate it, to delight in it. And you know what? It may take a great act of the will to appreciate this body that you're in, but it's part of my intention, I hope, just today, to so make you really be provoked and think about that. What does 1 Corinthians 6 tell us? It tells us this. It says, The body is uh, not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. But then it adds this, and the Lord for the body. Easily looked over that last little phrase in that verse. It's telling us that God is for your body. He loves your body. He made it. He is very pro-bodies. This is not a shell that you look forward to getting rid of or to being discarded or, you know, swapping out for another. This is you. And it's a wonderful, beautiful gift. Here's a third thing. Your body is a temple to be stewarded, tended, and cared for. Now, probably some of you are immediately thinking, what are you talking about here? Are you talking about, like, again, that, that idolatry of the body like? My body is a temple type thing. No, I don't mean it from that angle. Think about this. What is a temple for? A temple is not designed in itself to be the object of your worship, but to be the household of the the divine, of the deity, of the God that we worship. A temple is a vehicle through which you encounter the living God. We treat our bodies as holy because of the God who inhabits them. Who says, I'll make my dwelling in you. Who breathed his breath into you, his spirit, and then did so in in special way when you became a Christian. He breathed in Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to come and live in you. And so we know, you think about temples. Some of the oldest buildings in the world are temples. Because why? They stand because people take care of them. 
People love and treasure their temples. So you can find temples that are literally millennia in age, standing through the centuries because the people do not neglect or abuse them. And in the same way, when you think about your body, it is something that is given to you by God to be his habitation so that it is designed with no expense spared, just as human temples are, to be sustained and cared for. So if your body is a temple, again, this is from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul puts it very clearly. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, he says. So what's the implication? If you think about yourself, just maybe have a look at yourself for a second and say, this is a temple that I'm inhabiting right now. The Holy Spirit lives in me. What is, what is the purpose of that? What does that mean? What's the implication of that? Well, Paul then says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A temple is not to be treated in a profane way. It's meant to be taken care of for the honor of the one who lives in that temple. Which means that we don't, on the one hand, we don't, remember what we are talking about at the beginning, we don't, we don't worship the body because the body is just the temple. God is the one we worship. But neither do we disparage and neglect and despise the body because God is in it and he inhabits it. Here's the fourth thing. Your spirit affects your body, but also your body affects your spirit. Now, here's one of the implications of me saying, like, when we're fused together in an inseparable way, you're not spirit in a shell. You are body and spirit joined together. Now, as Christians, you should always have known that these two things are powerfully intertwined. Because think about it. Adam did a very physical thing. He took a bite out of a piece of fruit. And the repercussions were that all hell broke loose into the universe. A spiritual act. Whenever you take communion, you're doing a physical act in a very reverse way, and heaven is breaking in. These two things are powerfully intertwined and inseparable, the body and the spirit. And I think that we we forget this. We don't realize that there's a two-way street here, that the spirit affects the body, and that the body affects the spirit because these two things can't be separated. Think about it from, from each angle. Firstly, that your spiritual state does things to your body. You see it. Even just yesterday, um, my wife, uh, we were... Maybe I won't give you the whole context. But she made this, context, she made this comment about uh, a guy that... She said, he's got, a, he's got a nice face. I bet he's a nice guy. And I thought to myself for a second... That's rubbish. <laughs> and I, you shouldn't be looking at my face. That was the second thought. No. Um, but actually, from a biblical point of view, you know that saying, people get the face that they deserve? You ever heard that one? <laughs> it means that as you grow older, <clears throat> if you're somebody whose whole life is, is, uh, is bagged up with bitterness and, and woundedness and things like this, it begins to show itself in your very expressions. But a person, you ever meet these people who are just love and joy? Old saints in the Lord who've spent years communing with him. You know, in a sense, it doesn't matter how good-looking or bad-looking they are. Something, a radiance shows through in their, even in their physical body. I think the same is true of other areas of your spirituality. Your spirituality affects your body. If you are a bitter person, you, get, you can get... Acid in the stomach that churns away if you harbor unforgiveness and things like this. And who knows all the other ways that your body can be affected by your spiritual state. We see it in more obvious ways, of course, when you you flout God's law by taking whatever pleasures you want, whether drugs or sex with whoever you want and these kinds of things. And your body cannot withstand those things. So in a very real way, you see this is spiritual body connection. Your spiritual state affects your body. Now, what about the other way around? Do you know also that your body affects your spirit? 
Your body does things to your spirit. You ever wondered why in the Old Testament they have all these laws surrounding cleanliness? Whether it was, you know, some of them are pretty gross, to be honest. But all kinds of laws to do with what was happening with your body and saying it was a reflection of your spiritual state. Are you, now let's think about this in a slightly more practical way. If it's true that the two things are intertwined, can you, can you work that to your own benefit? I think the answer is yes. Doesn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 4 that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value in all things? And we're not to dismiss them. The effect, the powerful effect of what it is to treat your body with care for the benefit of your spirit. Have you ever noticed that the better you sleep, the better you rest, the better you exercise, the more joyful you are, Right? Is that something you noticed? In other words, you sin less. What you're doing to your body is affecting your spirit. Now you could just try and, if you're a materialist, you break this down just purely to uh, chemicals in the brain and things like that. But I don't think of it that way. Sure, exercising might release endorphins and, and sleeping might you know, recalibrate the brain and do whatever else it does. But do you know what? It's affecting your spirit. Remember how in the New Testament, um, Paul says that spiritual things are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now these are all spiritual acts, and they come out of a body that is taken care of very often in a more acute, beautiful way. Even secular science is beginning to recognize this, by the way, how If you smile, you feel happier. If you stand straight, you feel more confident, more joyful. These kinds of things. How much more then, how much more, those very acts that the the God of the Bible has laid down for us as being beneficial to our spirit, whether it's kneeling, whether it's eating the bread and the wine, whether it's praying out loud, giving voice to your prayers, whether it's using this body to serve Christ, all of that physical stuff affects and has a rebound effect into your spirit. Here's my fifth point, and it's kind of related. Your worship does not just involve your spirit. Now, Obviously, when Jesus is talking about true worship, remember he addressed the woman at the well in in Samaria, and he says that uh, a day will come when it doesn't matter whether you worship on this mountain or that mountain, but the person who worships truly is the one who worships in spirit and in truth. And so he also talked about how it's things that flow from the heart that make us unclean, not things that go into the body. And Jesus was addressing real problems. He was addressing the problems of fake worship, when people go through the motions, doing the physical acts, but their hearts and spirits are not engaged. And that's a very vital, important point. And probably one we talk about a heck of a lot more than we talk about the stuff that I'm addressing today. But you see, when those ideas are fused with Greek thinking, as I've been describing to you, this separation of body and spirit and the elevation of spirit above body, what you end up with is forgetting That God has called for your body to be engaged in the worship of him. That you are, as Paul put it, to beat this thing and make it your slave and surrender to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So what I mean is that worship, yes, is absolutely more than the physical. If all you do is come here on a Sunday and sing some songs, but your heart isn't engaged, that's not worship and God won't receive it as such. Worship is more than the physical, but it is absolutely not less. Let me show you some of the ways in which why, why this matters. The first is that worship is all of life. It's how you use your time, your finances, your service, your work, and etc., etc. And all this stuff is physical stuff. It's your activity that you do with your body throughout the week. All of it is worship that's offered unto God. But let me now bring it to a focus in terms of what we call worship, our actual gathering this way. Do you know... Your lips matter in worship. Do you know that? In Hebrews 13, he says this. He says, 
let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, maybe I'm overstating the point here or laboring a point that the Bible doesn't want to make, but I actually think as Christians, we're called to, to praise God with mighty, gut-level, loud singing because God is worthy of it. I'd love us to be the church in London that sings the loudest. It's one of the reasons we want to keep the band as spare as possible because really the greatest worship band is the voices of God's people. That's the sacrifice of praise. And that's something you can deliberately do to work to glorify God. You say, I'm just going to amp up the decibels. I'm going to let my voice give articulation to the praises of God without reservation. Here's another thing. Your posture matters. You know, the Western white Christians are the worst at this, aren't they? We think that we can go to church and stand straight with the hymn book open and sing songs to God and that that is the kind of worship he envisioned in the Bible. But you read the Bible and it is full of dancing, kneeling, hands raised. Why? Because the Hebrews didn't say it's just your mind engaging with God. It's just your spirit engaging with God. It was like it has to be reflected in your body. When you lift your arms in praise to the living God. People do it instinctively, don't they? When they're at concerts or football games and things like this. It's like you go to see Kanye West and it's like this kind of thing. And you think, why? Why? Because there's something innate from your very being is pulled out in a form of worship. And this is why, as Christians, this ought to be more true of us than of anyone. Your body worships God, not just your spirit. When you kneel, isn't it the universal act of surrender? You say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling in prayer. Or I'm struggling with this sin area in my life. I'm struggling to really offer my life over to God. Well, have you actually tried kneeling? It's an odd thought, isn't it? We think we have to master our spirits. Sometimes you have to begin by mastering your body. Get down on your knees. Get down on your face before God. Why does the Bible remark on this so often? He fell on his face. When he saw this, he was on his face prostrate. He went to his room three times a day and knelt to Jerusalem. Why does the Bible talk about this? Because God takes notice. He cares about this body. He made it. It's his. He wants you to bring it into submission to him. What about Jesus' death on the cross? You know, arguably, Jesus could have just done a spiritual act, whatever that is, without suffering physically. But no, the ultimate act of worship was Jesus outstretching his arms on the cross, receiving the nails into his hands and feet, the lashes to his back, the crown of thorns on his head, the spear that went through his side and up into his heart. And all of this was a physical thing, but it was the greatest act of worship the world has ever seen. Profound surrender. Even our suffering, the the physical suffering of this body can be a form of worship as you sacrifice this body on the altar. It's what Paul said about his own life and energies as he spilled himself out for the churches. He said in Colossians, let me just see if I can find it. Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we go. Um, In Colossians 1.24, it says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, in my body. I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Paul counted it a privilege to allow his body to experience suffering for the sake of the gospel because it was a way that he could allow his body to worship the Savior. You think about some of the ways that this plays out in the lives of people who who literally lay their bodies down for the sake of Jesus. People who burn the candle at both ends, working tirelessly for the sake of the gospel. 
You know, think about guys like Jonathan Edwards. He used to work 17 hours a day. And Spur- Spurgeon, similarly. You think about guys who's, who've lost their eyesight because they were so, they were so uh, in the Word of God and in, 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 in the literature that they had that they had to fill their minds and they were like, I can, I can waste, I can spend these eyes for the sake of the gospel that my, my heart and my life might be transformed by, the, by God. People who've traveled across seas and experienced sicknesses and dysentery. And, and often, you know, you read the stories of missionaries in the 1900s or the 1800s, and sometimes their whole families would die. You think there was the way of offering their bodies on the altar and saying, our suffering is a form of worship because worship is not just a spiritual thing, an internal thing, a thing detached from my body. It is laying my body down for the sake of Christ. Your worship does not just involve your spirit. Here's number six. A Hebrew way of understanding yourself changes your view of work. Now here's things are getting a little bit more, we're getting more to the periphery of the subject. We've dealt with some of the real core stuff. Here we're starting to spin out into some of the implications. You see, because we've been so influenced by the Greeks, we think that there's a hierarchy in work. You can break it down in this way. First of all, that the intellectual work is better than manual work. Isn't that something ingrained into our society? In fact, you've seen it in the way that we've managed and shaped our economy over the last 50 years or so. That we've moved away from making stuff towards being a services economy. So that what is most valued in our country is the currency of our minds and our education. And we consider ourselves to be right at the top of the pile, don't we? Almost. On a world scale. Do you realize this is just... This is just Plato in action. This is just the Greek way of thinking and valuing. We, t- we value the intellectual over the physical. We think people who have those jobs, the smart jobs, the professors and the bankers and things like that, are somehow superior. And actually, the Bible doesn't look at things that way. We also, here's another way it plays out. We value the spiritual over the secular. So we separate out labor for God from labor in your job. And we say, doing one thing, like working in full-time ministry in the church, is better, is superior, is is in some way uh, more elevated and has more eternal worth than going out and doing your day job, creating and shaping and whatever it is you do for a living. Think about this, though. Going back into Genesis 1, where we began. You see this... This really interesting connection, how it says in chapter 2, verse 5, actually, it says uh, that there was no man to work the ground. So here God had a problem. The ground needed to be worked. The earth, the matter, the substance of the world needed to be worked. So what did God do? He says he formed the man from the dust of the ground. So he made a man out of dirt to work the dirt. We are, as, whether we, as much as we try and extricate ourselves from it, we are intimately connected with the world that we inhabit, the physical world that we inhabit. And we're made with hands that are designed to form it and shape it and bring it into order before the living God. And then you start to read through your Bible and you think, well, this is pretty much how things played out. Look at, Mo- look at Moses. Moses was a shepherd before he became the ruler of Israel. Forty years he was a shepherd. What was David? A shepherd. And David says, you know, in his culture, these guys were living rough lives. They were living out on the hillsides. They would have smelled pretty bad. It would have been like dark, burned skin and all this kind of stuff. Jesus, what was he doing before he began his public ministry? As best as we know, he was most likely a carpenter. would have inherited the business from his dad. Paul, what did he do? His day job. He made tents. Most likely out of large pieces of leather canvas, and he would sew them together. Peter, what was he doing? He was out fishing. Now, I'm fascinated by the connection between the jobs that these guys did, and these are some of the most significant guys in the Bible, and how God used them um, in the formation of his kingdom, because the two things are intimately intertwined. Moses was a shepherd, he then shepherded Israel. David was a shepherd, he also shepherded Israel. Jesus was a builder. He was a, a, he was a, a, he was a mason, a carpenter builder. He worked with stone and wood. He says, I'll build my church. 
Peter was a fisherman. Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Paul was a tent maker. He then also described himself as a master builder of the temple, God's tabernacle, his tent. It's weird, isn't it? You think, well, maybe God actually really looks for people who are faithful with what they do with their hands, with their bodies, how they form and shape and take dominion over their environments, which is what God's original call was to Adam. Maybe I'm taking it too far. You can decide for yourselves. But what this does, when we start to see things from much more of a Hebrew lens rather than the Greek lens, you begin to be freed from these false comparisons. How many of our mums struggle with a tear in their hearts as they're torn between the potential of becoming an executive in their company and fighting for the cause of women to break the glass ceiling and having it all and the desire to take care of this child that I've got. And our culture has set up this, 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 this competition because we've said that to go out there and to do that is better than all this physical work, the never-ending cycle of washing and cleaning and ironing and feeding and all this kind of stuff that mums do. And it never seems to end because the minute you tidy things up, it all falls apart again. And believe me, I know, it's, it's fine when you've got one. You can take care of one. As soon as there are two in the mix, things go chaotic. And when C's not in the house... It goes ultra chaos. Like there is just like an atom bomb goes off. And I can't handle it. But the thing is, we've, we've so pulled apart these things, we've elevated the one above the other, that we've created this tension in the soul. Because everybody wants to do something significant with their lives. You think about how we do it in the professions. How, you know, two guys can work equally hard. One of them is uh, laboring all hours of the day in a kitchen and the other guy at his desk in the city. And one of them gets more kudos than the other. And I don't have a downer on that guy. I just think both of them should have kudos for, for faithfully serving God, right? It frees us from that dichotomy when we start to think from a biblical point of view about your body. It frees us from also thinking that our time is wasted in just doing your normal job. Because you were created to do your normal job. It's part of your design. And it's beautiful to God. I think, funnily enough, you can find secular authors who are starting to get a handle on this. There's a guy called Matthew Crawford who's written a number of bestsellers now about the value and benefit of working with your hands, not just your brains. And there's something, as kind of a sickness in, the, in our culture, a never-ending sort of black hole of a need to prove ourselves because all of our knowledge work, all of our mind work, never produces any widgets at the end of the day that we can show that we've done something productive and so people feel that they're not they're not actually doing much with their time and the more you learn to work with your environment as well as with your mind you start to feel a sense of well-being because you know Adam was made to do that a Hebrew way of understanding changes yourself it changes your view of work here's the seventh thing your body occupies a place well done therefore your environment matters we live in a world that honors aesthetics, maybe to a very unhealthy degree. Um, I think it's been amazing to watch how London's been transformed in the 14 years since I've been here. Parts of the city were quite drab, which are now being totally revived and transformed, and all kinds of small businesses and things. And a lot of people actually don't like this. You know, the whole thing they call gentrification, which is a bit of a dirty word. But in some ways, it is... It's, 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 it's something beautiful in the sense that this is what humans are meant to do. They're meant to bring order, beauty to ugliness and chaos. Now, if the world is doing, I think maybe we live for a little bit too much for aesthetics in the world in which we live. But Christians kind of react in the opposite direction. I think we think it's better to disengage from worldly stuff, from stuff that we think is unspiritual or irrelevant. But actually, as a Christian, you have more reason to engage with, the, with this city than anyone else. Because you know Genesis 1 and 2. You know that we were made by God. That God himself is the first creator. That he formed and then filled. Formed and then filled. He made the land and then he filled the land. He made the sky and then he filled the sky. He made the sea and then he filled the sea. And he brought all this order out of chaos. What was it when he arrived? It says that it was formless and void. And then God brings beauty and creativity and order into all that chaos. That's a godly thing to do. That is what God does. And then he makes man, and it says it again and again, doesn't it, in these passages that we read. You can have dominion over this and that and the other thing, which means you're born to rule. 
It means you were born to bring order, to create, to form, to shape, to beautify your environment. And this is why I think Christians have more of a mandate to do this stuff than anyone else. Because we know that this is what we were made for. You're not an accident doing accidental works that will eventually dissolve into nothing. You're God's formation, designed to be like him, a creator. Now, one of the ways my dad used to ram this home to us as we were kids was he'd walk into our room and if, if our room was absolute chaos, which was a fairly regular thing, he'd say, the kingdom of God needs to come to this room. <laughs> and you think, you know... You think, well, maybe the kingdom of God is just church and the people in the church and what God's doing in the church. And he was saying, no, 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 the kingdom of God is is you, as God's agent, shaping your environment, beautifying your environment, being on the front foot, because you are a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve, and more importantly, a child of Christ. And hence this unstoppable instinct in humans to do this, especially where a Christian worldview has begin, begun to shape and affect our minds and our hearts. What's the alternative? That you just disengage? You're just a brain in an environment that is just there to feed your body? But as Christians, no, that's not what we're here for. And I think in some ways, this is why I love being in London. I love seeing this city explode in life and vibrancy and color and creativity. Because it preaches to me about the God who made us. Wow, it's amazing, isn't it? Number eight, embodied beats disembodied every time. We're at a very strange moment historically because increasingly, you know, in the past, people would have craved to have like psychic connections where you can communicate with somebody without actually talking or seeing them or even being in the same room. This is now happening. We have our phones and we communicate with each other via our phones. It's almost paranormal. But it's also something a little bit sick about this, right? I was uh, just recalling the lyrics. I'm not a great fan, but I was recalling the lyrics that I heard from this song by a Passenger, where he says, It's the meaning of life, and it's streamed live on YouTube. But I bet Gangnam Style will still get more views. We're scared of dry, drowning, flying, and shooters, but we're all slowly dying in front of computers. And then he It gets a bit cheesy. He says, we should run through the forest, we should swim in the streams, we should laugh, we should cry, we should love, we should dream, we should stare at the stars and not just the screens. You should hear what I'm saying and know what it means. Through all the the poetic cheesiness, there is actually a point there. uh, We're born to experience this physical world that God made for our good, but especially in relationships. I was listening to another song by King's Kaleidoscope on the new album. He he talks about this digital world we live in and the need to be re-enchanted with the wonder of God. He says, I'm trying to stay, to stay safe in a digital escape, in an isolated world. Isn't that what happens when people walk down the street like this? They're in an isolated world, totally unconscious of environment. Keep it tame. Cold and cal- calculated truths, a reality I choose, because it's always you clicking, choosing your reality in every given moment. In a regulated world, feel no pain. He says, I'm connected in a daze, roam unconscious, disengaged. How many hours do you find you can spill and waste on, on, it, on the internet? In a simulated world, I sustain. Swimming, senseless through a void. It's a good word for it, right? Ease my appetite with noise in a stimulated world, go insane. And he says, shadow in a matrix, searching for a light. Captive of the jungle, hiding in the night. Break me free to live enchanted. Now... When you start to think this through biblically, I'm not saying any, I'm not, please don't mishear me, I'm not saying that it's wrong that we have these opportunities to connect through virtual means and so on. But think it through biblically. Your body matters, and embodiment beats disembodiment every time. Think about, first of all, the craving inside us to see God. It's what Moses articulated when he said to God, please, in Exodus 33, show me your glory. He's like, I like having this communion with you through speaking. It's great, but I want to see you. He wanted, for want of a better term, a physical relationship. You know, in the Bible as well, think of this. You know, what's the, the height of physical relationship is to, to have sex with another person. 
And in the Hebrew, the, the term that they would use for that is to know somebody. Because they're saying that somehow this bodily engagement leads to a deeper intimacy of soul. In fact, that's why Christians think sex is such a precious and profound and holy thing. Because you should only ever know someone on that level some, when you're committed to them in covenant relationship. Because to know somebody cheaply and then to be discarded is to, is to break and damage your heart. Think about Paul's longings to be with the churches. He says it in many of his letters, but here's one example in Romans 1. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So here's what I'm saying. Because we're not just brains, we're not just data, we're not just brains in a shell, we're people, we're bodies, embodied creatures. Embodied relationships beat virtual ones every day of the week. And this is why I'm not for virtual online church. I have no idea what that's for or what it's designed to accomplish. This is why I think social media is one of the great misnomers of our age. It's totally, you know, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Social media. The whole point of being social is that your communications would not be mediated, but that they be direct, that they be face-to-face. And so... As we, as Christians, champion, ought to champion the preciousness of gathering, the preciousness of actually being in one another's lives in a real way. Because there is more that's exchanged in a minute of silent communication than in many interactions from a distance and online. A thousand unspoken ways of communicating, of loving, and of enjoying one another. Here's the ninth thing. Paul talks about it, by the way, as, you know, I want to impart something to you. Imagine if we all had that attitude when we came to church. I long to be with you, to impart something to you. You would never miss a Sunday, right? You would never miss a Sunday. Here's the ninth. Have a little bit of awe towards those around you. In a city like London, so populous, so crowded, I think we tend to overlook, ignore, and disregard other people very easily, don't we? There was that moment, a documentary, where they brought these guys over from, uh, I can't remember which country it was in Africa, but these guys from a village who'd not really experienced the Western world and the digital world and all these kinds of things. And there was a shot of these, these friends who had this obviously this deep bond and they loved each other and laughed together and they're walking across... London Bridge, or the Millennium Bridge it might have been, in the morning at rush hour, and all these cold grey faces walking past them, not acknowledging them, smiling, and they're just like, what's going on? Like this confusion, like why are these people around us and nobody's talking? And obviously I think when you, when you, when you live in a city like this, in many ways, you, it almost trains you to disregard and not love other people. Because no one else is doing it, so why should I? It almost inhibits you, crushes your personality and, your, and your, your sense of duty towards other people. And all the time we pay such regard to inanimate objects. You know, animate, to be animated is to be full of life and God breathed his spirit into Adam. And yet we're surrounded by inanimate objects in London that we pay a lot more attention to, whether it's the architecture or our phones or whatever it is. But think about this. That person next to you, just have a quick sideways glance. That person right next to you, if you didn't sit next to anyone, then you're feeling ashamed right now, aren't you? (laughs) That person next to you is the unique handiwork of God. You ever looked at people's nails? They're weird. I always think, oh, my nails look really normal. And then I look at other people. It's like, what's wrong with your nails? <laughs> Some people, not all people. Because everyone's a different. And you, they surprise you. They're like, whoa, these are really wide ones. And these are really like narrow. Those are really long. Those are ridged or whatever is going on with your nails. It's so confusing. And it's just like one tiny part of your anatomy. You go 
check out my kids' eyelashes. They both have really long eyelashes. They got them from me. <laughs> it runs in the family. You can't see mine because they're fair. But Seth's and Isla's are dark and they're like little Bambi eyes. Every little part of your anatomy is uniquely made by God. And you are an extraordinary piece of handiwork. And therefore, as we regard one another, I think we ought to have an honor. We honor the uniqueness of people around us, their gifts, their creativity, their presence. The fact that they are right next to you at this moment is a special gift. You honor their strength, what they offer to you. You honor their scars, what they have suffered in this broken world. And we honor them with purity. We honor them with pure eyes, with pure regard, and with pure treatment, with pure conduct. Because this person is special, is unique, is someone in whom God lives. And we protect them, and we nurture them, and we bless them. Because we are the pinnacle, the peak of God's creation. And we only just fall short of worshipping them. I want to read to you this famous quote. I'm sure I've read it before. I'm sure I'll read it many times in the future. From C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory. And it's fairly lengthy, but it's worth it. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, talking about the potential of your nature, is with the awe, he says, and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, or friendships, or loves, or play, or politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, Jeremy, (laughs) work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Powerful thoughts, aren't they? Here's my last point. Since your body is a beautiful, beautiful gift, enjoy embodiment with thanksgiving. God made pleasure. In James 1, he tells us, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Now, of course, when we think about these good gifts that God's given us, we tend to fall into these traps that we've been sort of describing. On the one hand, we tend to idolize created things and the pleasures of this world. And they take an inordinate degree of control over us but Christians have often tripped off the other end of the scale and become very prudish about the things of this world whether it's food and drink whether it's sex in terms of like advocating celibacy over marriage whether it's you know whatever it is how do we navigate this this thing so that we don't become idolaters and not do we become prudes I think the answer is just understanding again God's goodness God has given you billions of sense of recept, sense receptors in your body and all of them are communicating with your brain even right now you might be thinking my bum is aching this has been really long it's time to go I'm really hungry I don't know what's going on in your body but there are sense receptors firing off all the time and this is God he designed you to experience joy goodness and pleasure One of the reasons that Satan gets power over us is because he somehow has convinced us that he's the author of delight. That good things come from him and that God is withholding. This is why when you give way to temptation, illicit pleasure, it's because you think God would hold back from you the good stuff 
and you think, well, Satan's got something better for me right now. You may not put it in that terms. You may not make it as explicit as that. But that is essentially the logic that's going on in your heart. When you read the Bible, you realize Satan made nothing. He can't make anything. All he can do is, is distort and abuse. Steal the technology and then pervert it. And the original is always better. Because God made you to experience pure delight. That's why James says, he begins that sentence, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Because to be deceived is to think that you can get good stuff outside of God's plan for you. But to know what the Bible says is to recognize that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Ah, so I'm happiest when I'm in God's will, receiving good things from his hands, expectant of better things in the future. That's when I'm happiest. That's when I'm most joyful. So instead of rejecting this world or feeling guilty when you enjoy good stuff, the Bible tells us that there's a better way. It tells us that there's a way of thanksgiving. So that in places like this, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You are made to enjoy food and drink. And I think as Christians, I would love for us continually to recapture the wonder of what it is to be alive, to have joy in this frame that God's made you in. You know, there's that moment in the film Avatar where um, he first gets his, his blue body. And um, this thing, this body's massive and it's powerful and it's strong. And as he's learning how to use it, he starts sprinting and running and jumping and spinning and climbing and all this stuff. And he's just absolutely feeling the thrill of this, power, this body he's in. And in some ways, it's how, as a Christian, you should conduct yourself every day. Look a bit weird, but maybe if we can recapture something of the heart of that. To be enchanted with God's goodness to you in the simple pleasures of life, mediated through food and drink and sleep and friendship and laughter and community and church and singing and the bread and the wine. So that rather than taking it for granted, we receive it always with thanksgiving. It always comes from him. In 1 Timothy 4. He talks about people who say they forbid all the good stuff. They say don't get married. And they say don't eat these foods. And Paul says, no, no, no. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. If it's received with what? With thanksgiving. If you can say thank you for it to God, I'm pretty sure you're not sinning. If you're running from his presence and can't say thank you for it, then you probably are. And if you're not saying thank you for it and it's a good thing, then you're also sinning. But whenever you can receive a good gift and say thank you, that's when it becomes holy. Does that make sense? Now, I want to bring it to a close here, but I just want to give you a little brief clue as to where we're going with this. God had to become man. He had to become the second Adam, excuse me, to achieve at least these three things. And I'm just going to read them and let them sit in your brain as we take communion. To save our entire humanity rather than plucking your spirit from your body. Secondly, to take his rightful place as the ruler, picking up where Adam left off, but doing it right this time. And to express his passionate purpose to recreate this world. So that like a broken Lego set, he wants to remake it from the distorted wreckage. This is a, the Christian hope. And it is distinct from the hopes that I've read of in other faiths. It's distinct from the bleak projected future that you'll read in the newspapers. It's full of optimism. And it's very earthy indeed. So as we take communion, be aware, be mindful even, that as you eat and as you drink, 
It is designed to touch your senses because Christ was a real man with a real body. A body that was torn for you, blood that was spilled for you. This is why he didn't just leave us with spiritual acts of worship, but with physical ones as well. Because we are meant to receive into our bodies the promise of new life, of new bodies, and of a future that is made by him and that cannot be broken. Father God, I pray that as we are called to be people living in a moment of time, in a particular point in history, but also a particular location. As we sit in your great plans and promises, the one who formed us in the womb and then knew every one of our days before they came to be. I pray, living God, that you'll teach us how to live this embodied life with joy and thanksgiving and to appreciate every good thing as coming from the Father of lights. Living God, we pray that you will make Christ more real to us as we uncover the wonders of your incarnation, your enfleshment, the wonders that you became man to save us. Revive our hearts and our spirits, we pray, as you also touch our bodies and help us to enjoy you more in every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.